Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Sommer. This week, the eyes of the world are watching Ukraine as Russian troops are massed on its border. How will Russian President Vladimir Putin's next move affect Israel and the Middle East? Haaretz columnist and former diplomat Alan Pincus is here in the studio to break it all down for us. But first, Haaretz correspondent Liza Rozovsky is on the ground in Ukraine. We'll talk to her. We are very lucky to have joining us from Ukraine today, Haaretz correspondent Liza Rozovsky. So the whole world is looking from afar, discussing strategy and warfare, but you are there on the ground spending time with the people whose lives are being affected by the conflict. First of all, thank you for joining us. Where are you exactly right now, Liza? Thank you for having me. Uh, right now I'm in Kharkiv, the ex-Soviet capital of Ukraine. It used to be the capital until uh, 1930-something, which is pretty close to the Russian border. And uh, it's a city where most of the people actually speak Russian as their uh, mother tongue. But I think the general atmosphere is pretty patriotic. And uh, if you ask people, I don't know, on the streets or in the cafes, on the, in the shops, nobody wants Putin to come. So even people who are Russian-speaking, who have strong Russian identities at this point, are sort of rallying around Ukraine in terms of not wanting to be dominated by Russia and by Putin, right? Uh, yes. When you say Russian identity, I think it might be... Cultural. Uh, the wrong definition. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they speak Russian, but they, most of them at least, the Russians, the Jews... Uh, identify as Ukrainian uh, citizens. You know, it's it's a very important patriotic feeling that is unifying lots of Ukrainians. But you've been talking to all kinds of Ukrainians, right? You've done a few articles where you were speaking to uh, people who were volunteering for the Ukrainian army, for the Ukrainian uh, cause in the ongoing conflict between them and the pro-Russian separatists, right? Yes, the Ukrainian army uh, used to be very, very weak and uh, in a very poor state in uh, 2014. It has improved largely by now, but the Ukrainians felt they, they, they need really to, at first at least, to really carry their army through the war, to feed it to give the soldiers uh, equipment, mm -hmm. to really support it in order to fight the separatists, yeah. who were, of course, getting huge support from Russia and from uh, the Russian troops. And I think, although the, the situation in the army has strongly improved, there's still a feeling of huge responsibility for the army. Right. So like, how, what did that look like to you? What were people doing, these volunteers? You know, what are they spending their days and nights and, you know, what, what are they dedicated to doing? Some of them are traveling a couple of times a month to the front, uh, carrying um, all kinds of equipment, starting with uh, tablets and computers and ending with cars, army jeeps to the soldiers. Today, 
I uh, visited the border, the crossing point between Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, which is really, really close to, uh, to Kharkov. And I don't know the exact uh, percents, but a huge amount of people who are using it are people who are living in the in the separatist so-called republics, okay. yeah, Donetsk and Luhansk, because the um, the crossing points between Ukraine and Donetsk don't don't work so 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 effectively. They 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 need to travel across, so they go to Russia and then from Russia they enter Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very interesting to see it because you see that no matter the political situation, yeah, no matter how difficult the conflict is and uh, no, no matter what the leaders in uh, Moscow or in Kiev or in Washington are saying, people are finding their ways to come across. And some of them, for example, are elderly people who want to get their pension from Ukraine. You know, they keep living in Donetsk because their home is there, but they <laughs> still need the, uh, the, their money. Mm-hmm. So uh, they uh, travel to Kiev or to Kharkov and take the money and then go back. And uh, sometimes the families find themselves now on different sides of the border, but people still find ways to communicate and uh, to uh, to see each other and uh, of course it's very difficult for them but it's um, sort of touching to see how people get along so tell me about the atmosphere in ukraine you wrote about ukrainians packing an anxiety suitcase like a go bag you know in case they have to uh, mm-hmm. to move quickly um when you walk around the streets and the cities there, do you feel any level of anxiety? Is the situation in people's daily conversations or do you have to like draw out of them whether they're worried about uh, about conflict and an imminent invasion, war, etc.? No, I mean, I, I didn't see any lines or queues in the shops. I didn't. Because uh, I, they can order everything online now, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So in order to feel the anxiety, you need to actually meet the people to sit with them in their homes and to listen with them to the Telegram uh, or YouTube channels they're reading and, and, and watching. And then you understand that, yes, uh, this is a country that's at least since 2014 is living in huge stress. Lots of them, when they, you know, when they hear I'm from Israel, they sort of saying that, oh, we can relate. We know you you are living in a very similar situation, <laughs> which is not exactly, exactly true because actually the situations are quite different. But yes, and, and uh, well, I already met a few people who flew away or moved mm-hmm. again from the occupied uh, so-called uh, territories of Donetsk and Luhansk after uh, 2014, and they are saying that they are totally traumatized and they and they to- they totally uh, suffer from uh, uh, post-trauma uh, syndrome. So, uh, but in the, at the same time, you know, people are drinking and eating and smiling and spending money. 
and uh, not wearing masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about COVID, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Liza, you're a member of the uh, Israeli-Russian speaking community. You immigrated uh, from Russia to Israel when you were 10 years old, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, since the previous round of conflict on the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, border in 2014, uh, according to the Israeli government, more than 30,000 people moved from Ukraine to Israel between 2014 and uh, 2018, and I'm sure even uh, more uh, now. So we hear about assessments. No one knows exactly of about 50 to 75,000 Jews left in the eastern part of Ukraine. When you talk to them, do you get any sense of, are they interested in going to Israel? Do you see, you know, some sort of airlift situation if the situation gets difficult? How do they talk about uh, staying or going? Well, uh, no, no, I mean, no one I met, I met some Jews and no one is uh, some of them uh, have even already lived in Israel, like, you know, had a period of life in Israel Mm -hmm. and uh, came back. Uh, No, I don't think uh, anybody feels uh, that the situation, you know, is so urgent uh, and uh, that you like need to pack and and, and go to Israel. Right now, what I heard about in uh, Kharkov, about Kharkov's Jewish community, that it's very divided because like, say, half of the community is very, very patriotic and pro-Ukrainian, and the other half is Mm -hmm. pro-Russian. But they still go to the same synagogue and and meet, uh, you know, during the Jewish holidays and uh, say hello. And uh, uh, so, (laughs) uh, but um, no, unless the war really starts, I don't think Israel needs to expect a new wave of... uh, Before you took off for Ukraine, did you perceive any difference in the way that the massive Ukrainian and Russian immigrant community uh, in Israel viewed what was going on in Crimea, Russia, Ukraine? Um, Any difference from how they see it now to, you know, rewind to 2014 from their perspective back then? Or um, they, they seem more invested, less invested, you know, more or less on one side or same? First of all, people are changing their views. The amount of propaganda, especially on the Russian side, but I believe also on the Ukrainian side, uh, is huge. And people who are mostly elderly people, but not only, yeah, who, who are uh, getting lots of media inputs in their lives, you know, mm-hmm. either from the state TV stations or even from YouTube channels. They are, first of all, they are very into it. And and usually they have a very strong opinion, um, pro or uh, anti-Russian and uh, slash Ukrainian. And and I think the the Israeli Russian speaking community kind of represents the same uh, trends, you know. Mm -hmm. Of course, when the war was in its severe period, yeah, like uh, 2014, 2015, uh, people were more, more into it, and uh, but but now, for example, more lots of my Russian-speaking Israeli friends have put uh, Ukrainian flags on their Facebook avatars. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yes, I mean, of course, the Russian-speaking community is watching what closely what's going on here. Liza, thank you so much for talking to us. Keep uh, the great reporting going uh, over there in Ukraine. Uh, Stay safe and uh, stay warm. (laughs) I'm sure that's not easy. Um, (laughs) No. uh, Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. 
Coming up next, the big picture on the Russia-Ukraine conflict with Haaretz columnist Alon Pincus. With us in the studio today is Alon Pincus, who has had a distinguished career in diplomacy and politics. He was Consul General for Israel in New York. He's been Chief of Staff and Advisor to Foreign Ministers, Prime Ministers, and a member of the Israeli delegation at the Israel-Syria Peace Talks. But now, in our opinion here at Haaretz, he's reached the pinnacle of success. He's a regular columnist for us. Alon, thanks for being here. My pleasure. That's quite a pinnacle. (laughs) So, as we record, Russia has positioned more than 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, demanding that NATO formally declare it will never allow Kiev to join the alliance. So the general belief or kind of the consensus, um, even Biden said something about it, is that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is a question of time. And everyone's asking not if, but when it's going to happen. So I'll ask you in a second about uh, your assessment of its likelihood. But just looking at the current situation for a moment from our local point of view, where does this leave Israel? Because it feels like 10 years ago, right, there wouldn't be a question that our interests are 100% lined up on the side of the U.S. and the West, and we need to rally to its support and make a lot of public statements. But hasn't the situation on our northern border changed that calculation? Does the fact that Russia is such a power player in Syria and Lebanon mean that Israel needs to hedge its bets a little bit and try to keep its head down? No, not really. I I think, Allison, that Israel's interests still lie with the U.S., uh, 99.9% of the eggs should be put in that basket. Um, you know, Israel should be respectful and um, and cognizant of Russia's role, although I, I, I don't think they, they're such a, a power player that we the way we tend to think about them. Uh, they're present in Syria. They, they have an involvement in Lebanon. They have a deflective role vis-a-vis Iran and its activities in Syria, but they're not a real power player. Here's the thing with Israel. Supposedly, there's no direct link to Israel. I mean, whatever happens between Russia and Ukraine and and the uh, expected or anticipated NATO slash U.S. response, sanctions, what have you, uh, has no direct bearing on, on Israel. And Israel is wise to keep quiet and not, not offer help to the Ukrainians, not offer support to the Russians, not announce it's uh, uh, fully behind the U.S. or NATO. Just, you know, stay out of it. It's none of our business. But indirectly, anything having to do with America's uh, image, with America's power, with America's ability to project power, with the perception in the world uh, um, of what American power is has an, an, an a direct impact on, on Israel's national security because we are considered in the world and consider ourselves as not only being an ally of the U.S., but having the, uh, uh, the, the, the U.S. diplomatic and military umbrella. And then when the U.S. weakens or when the perception is that it's weakened, uh, then by definition or by extension, Israel is weakened. Um, On the other hand, um, there's the issue of Russia. Um, This has, again, indirect bearing on us because I happen to think, and I wrote about this for Haaretz, that uh, this is not just about Ukraine. This This is Russia and China tacitly trying to restructure the international order to uh, um, put an end to American hegemony, the post-Soviet American hegemony. This is a lengthy process. Ukraine is a uh, focal point of these tensions, and Israel has to be very 
attentive and sensitive to what's going on there because that too, going back to uh, the first item, that too affects Israel, how the U.S. is, is uh, perceived in the world. So in the middle of all this last week, Prime Minister Naftali yeah. Bennett thinks it's a good uh, idea to pick up the phone and have a chat with uh, Vladimir Putin. Yeah. What exactly played out last week? It, it, it was an odd thing. I mean, uh, there was this report that, that that Bennett just spoke to Putin, which, you know, in my I, – I, I don't know the exact details of why that, that talk took place at that particular uh, time. I mean, it was obviously about Iran. That was the uh, uh, the gist of the uh, conversation based on the prime minister's um, um, communications office. But given what's going on and what's on Putin's, what's going on with the Ukraine and 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 um, and Putin's agenda and plate, uh, if you know, if I were uh, Mr. Bennett, I would postpone that conversation. It just invites all kinds of pressure. I mean, Putin could have said, I want you to say something supportive of Russia's legitimate claims because you too have legitimate territorial claims. You too understand the importance of uh, Crimea as the land of our forefathers, as is Judea, Judea and Samaria. He could have said things that would have put Prime Minister Bennett in a tough position. Um, nonetheless, he made the, the conversation, and in that conversation, he offered uh, to to host Russian-Ukrainian peace talks. Now, which is great, you know, because we we have such a good, positive, constructive experience in peace talks uh, <laughs> that 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 you know it, it's it, it Says would be a former member of the delegation. Right, it series. would be it would be remiss and ungentlemanly and unfriendly not to offer that uh, wise advice to. Um, to other countries, um, you know. Uh, other in, Bennett's, in Bennett's defense, didn't uh, Netanyahu at one point make a similar offer? I think so. Yes, yeah. I, th I think so. Yes, but look. So was this Bennett saying, you know, I can do it too. I can be a player uh, just like me. Possibly again because of the sensitivity of the timing. If I were him, I wouldn't have that call. You know, I'm trying to imagine Putin asking one of his aides or secretary, um, "What's next?" <laughs> And they're saying, well, you have uh, a 20 minute in your calendar, as you can see, Mr. President, blocked for a conversation uh, with the Israeli prime minister, Mr. Bennett. And Putin is saying something in Russian that, that, that we shouldn't repeat in the podcast. And, and then he says, why? What is this about? Why the hell now? What does he want? Assuming, of course, that Mr. Bennett initiated the call which best of my understanding it is the case because of the ongoing Iran talks. Now, Bennett knows that on the issue quite differently, actually not quite, but, but diametrically uh, um, um, different from, from the um, Ukraine issue, the U.S. and Russia are cooperating very closely and, 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 and are very tight and almost, as goes the uh, cliche, on the same page on the Iran issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what on earth would you want Putin to do uh, uh, when you call him about Iran when you know that he's now facing the wrath, maybe, maybe not, of the United States of America, NATO, yes or no invasion, markets are falling, the, the uh, Moscow stock market is crashing – and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, you know, Israel has to insert itself into uh, everything and anything. We offered the same thing in the Ethiopian civil war recently. I'm waiting for an Israeli offer on the Taiwan, uh, North <laughs> Korea. <laughs> yeah, that's coming. We, sure. we will offer any advice and any creative idea as long as it doesn't contain the word Palestinians. Exactly. Distract, distract. Yes. <laughs> 
So you were just channeling Putin and you wrote a great column where you were trying to get inside Putin's head. I think it had the ultimate. I interviewed him with uh, um, in absentia. Right. An, yeah. an imaginary interview with right. the ultimate clickbait headline. Everybody asks, what does Putin want? We think we have an answer. Well, that's the editors. I didn't claim that I know. <laughs> the editors figured out that they understand now. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. So we all um, read it thinking that you knew exactly what Putin wants. Do you have a theory? No, no, no. Well, I, I know what he wants. I don't know what he will do. Okay. Uh, what he will do is the big question, obviously, and and no one knows that but Putin. And I think he's positioned himself in a very tough situation, where damned if he invades and damned if he doesn't invade. But we'll get to that. What but does he want? Isn't Biden in a similar position? He's sort of damned if he gets, you know, uh, confrontational, and he's damned if he doesn't. Yeah, but for him, for him, it's easy. It's it, well, easy is a relative term here. Um, Biden was given this opportunity to show American power, to project American foreign policy interests, to consolidate NATO, which, by the way, was Putin's objective or mission statement here was to solve disunity and discord in NATO. Right. And it, it, it backfired right. because Ukraine, although it was offered to join, invited officially to join NATO in 2008, no one in NATO... Uh, um, ever intended to uh, make good on that promise, and they know why. And so did the Ukrainians, and more importantly, so did the Russians. But once this once this crisis started to unfold, all of a sudden Sweden and Finland, two countries that have pledged their neutrality for decades, have shown interest in joining NATO. Outside the German issue, the, the Germany's foreign policy, which is a separate issue and deserves uh, uh, some attention, most of NATO is is squarely behind the U.S. Now, the U.S. is not saying we will bomb Moscow, we will invade uh, St. Petersburg, nor are they saying we'll deploy the 82nd Airborne Division around uh, uh, Kiev. All they're saying is you're going to feel the uh, uh, the weight and the wrath of American sanctions and, quote unquote, we're going to start high and stay high. This is not going to be gradual. We're going to go for the jugular. We're going to we're going to remove you from SWIFT, the international banking uh, um, transfer and information exchange platform. We're going to target your sovereign wealth fund. We're going to go after your government owned financial institutions. We're going to target individually oligarchs, the, the money inner circle around uh, Putin that basically makes the Russian economy uh, run. We're going to go after all that, not to mention export control in the U.S. that would make it impossible for you Russians, Russia, uh, to access technology components. In the Russia has advanced technologies in some fields, but in terms of uh, microchips, for example, which mm -hmm. is the uh, you know things we use to um, to make our our smartphones, our cars, and airplanes to run. Russia is in a severe deficit yeah. over there. And so these... But they do have uh, energy. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. There's no question. But it's a one-dimensional economy. And, and, and they assumed that NATO will cripple under the uh, uh, threat of uh, energy shortage and Russian disruption of, of natural gas. Germany, for example, imports 35% uh, um, of its gas from Russia. Um, but the U.S. said, we don't care if you invade Ukraine. And there was a, a mishap that, that Biden, he said, well, you know, if it's a small, limited yeah. uh, incursion, then he quickly corrected it, as did Kamala Harris mm -hmm. and, and um, Secretary of State Blinken. They said any, any, any kind of invasion will incur these so you're, sanctions. So you're bucking the conventional wisdom that Putin is some sort of grandmaster sitting there manipulating the chess moves and calling the shots and everyone's dancing to his if, tune. If you, uh, I'd love to take the credit for that, but, <laughs> but, but if, you, if you read 
um, widely and broadly people who deal with Russia, which I have no claim of being a Russia expert, let alone a, a Putin expert, um, you see that I'm not the only one who's been saying that in the last few weeks. Um, you see all over the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy Magazine, Foreign Affairs Magazine, not to mention websites and and uh, podcasts, all saying he overstepped, uh, he miscalculated, uh, this is a march of folly, um, he misjudged the West, he is now in a position where uh, um, this, there's nothing in it for him to invade Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So do you see any, um, you know, if you're playing amateur diplomat, any way to you know, get him to climb down off of the tree, so to speak, okay. in, a, in a diplomatic way, you know, yes. any way to avert confrontation. Well, that's the tragedy. While of, letting him walk away, you know, appearing strong, because that's essentially what he wants, right? Well, that's essentially the secret of a good negotiation, that, mm-hmm. that, that both sides, even though they know they haven't won, both sides need to show to the outside world that they, in fact, have won, or at least uh, um, um, achieved something. And you can't... You can't uh, humiliate and, and and defeat your your opponent in a diplomatic negotiation. Otherwise, it, it won't work, and it's not going to be durable. It's not going to be viable. That's the tragedy, Allison, because uh, a diplomatic solution exists. And the U.S. Uh, belatedly, but nonetheless, made those offers last Wednesday or last Thursday in a written paper that they delivered to, uh, to the Kremlin, to Putin, in which they, they basically said – we will set up a mechanism with you, Russia, to scale down exercises in Eastern Europe, force deployment, NATO force deployment in, in Eastern Europe. We will not agree to you dictating to sovereign countries whether they can or cannot join NATO. We, we maintain the open door policy as we have for many years, but they, they quietly, discreetly let them know that neither Ukraine or Georgia, uh, which is another concern that Putin, Putin invaded Georgia in 2008, right. reminding our listeners. Neither of these countries is going to effectively join uh, NATO. Putin is making one argument that seems very logical, very reasonable, and, and a lot of people in the West have bought into this, this romantic uh, 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 view of Russia as the uh, perpetual victim here. Putin is saying the following. Everyone now, Allison, knows how to quote Putin as saying and writing, by the way, in a, in a lengthy essay that the worst uh, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the disintegration or the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Right. He later corrected it and said it's the second, of course, after World War II, but I meant not, in, not a war situation. Okay. And for him, it's a formative thing. Don't forget, he wasn't born in 1992. He's a KGB officer who was deployed in East Germany all his younger years or in his former career. He's saying something very simple. He's saying, okay, the fall of the Soviet Union was a catastrophe. Uh, That Russia was shrunk into a midsize uh, country was something we tolerated because we were weak and we were trying to build, uh, rebuild Russia. We lost the Soviet Union in terms of all the republics. We lost uh, Ukraine. We lost Kazakhstan. We lost uh, um, Azerbaijan. We lost Georgia. We lost Belarus. We lost the Baltic uh, countries, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Um, but we were okay with it. We, we grudgingly, we accepted that this is, this is how things are. But you, NATO, that wasn't enough for you. Between 1999 and 2004, 
you increased the uh, participation or the membership in NATO um, and, and, and touched our borders. There was no reason. Between 1999 and 2004, you added nine former Warsaw Pact member countries to, I can name them now, but, you know, Romania, Bulgaria, right, yeah. Hungary, Poland, uh, um, the Baltics, etc., Czech Republic, Slovakia. Um, why? Why did you do this? Why, why, well, against whom? Is it against Russia? Are we a threat to uh, Germany and France that you needed to expand uh, uh, to, to Poland's eastern border with Belarus? There's some logic into it, except for one thing. Um, if, if Russia is not a threat to NATO, surely Mr. Putin understands that NATO is not a threat to Russia. But he thinks that the Netherlands and Denmark want to invade Russia. He thinks that the Italians are dying to uh, conquer Moscow. Of course not. And so he's using this as as a pretext. Now, going back to your to your question. So diplomatically, the U.S. could have said, OK, here are our assurances that there will be a, a, a significant scale down, scale back of, of exercises and force deployment. Um, we will set up a mechanism. Uh, it's too late, Putin says. And then they said, okay, so so this is not about NATO expansion. This is about you wanting to remain a dominant European power. And for that, you need Ukraine. You already have Belarus. Mm -hmm. And now you want to basically not conquer, but basically subjugate Ukraine and turn it into a, some kind of a puppet state. Install your own pride. Like, he believes it's part of Russia. He believes it's part of Russia. And he's making, you know, historical claims that Kiev was the uh, um, ancient or the medieval, not ancient, uh, capital of the uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, kingdom before it moved to Moscow. Okay, so I'm waiting for the diplomatic solution. No, that was the diplomatic okay. solution. The Americans said, we'll set up a mechanism. Okay. Okay, drawback. Mm -hmm. uh, Ukraine will make uh, uh, assurances that they, we will make assurances that there won't be any forced deployment in Ukraine. The Ukraine may, may ask to join the EU or NATO, but effectively we will not accept them. Uh, we will not accept Ukraine into the EU because A, they're corrupt, B, their economy is in shambles, and that we won't accept them to NATO because we understand your sensitivities and concerns. We can't say that publicly, but we're willing to uh, give you unwritten assurances to that extent. And the Russians came back within a day, Thursday. Mm, no way. They said there's very little cause for optimism based on America's, uh, to which the Americans, you know, uh, uh, upped the ante and, and, and started uh, uh, with, with their own incendiary uh, rhetoric. We will send troops to the Baltics and we will send more anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine and anti-tank uh, uh, missiles to Ukraine, and we will do this, and we will do that, and then the administration leaked out a list of the sanctions, which I mentioned a few moments earlier, that that they're weighing and considering, although not being specific on what exactly will be used. And so now the situation is like this: the West is saying basically to Putin, "Okay, this is just you wanting to control Ukraine because it is showing pro-Western or an explicit pro-Western uh, orientation." And you're afraid that you're going to, we understand that, but at least be honest with this. This is not about NATO threatening you. Ukraine is not going, is not militarily threatening uh, Russia. But there is something much bigger here, which I alluded to earlier, and that's the China factor. Mm -hmm. There's no proof that Putin 
and President Xi Jinping of, of China spoke about this or in uh, cahoots or, you know, the, that they're coordinating this, this uh, thing. We're wondering if for this reason that uh, he might wait with something uh, big till after the, the Olympics. Olympics. The Olympics are from the 4th to the 20th. Right. That's a long time from right. now. Right. Everyone said he first they said he can't. He's waiting for the weather to improve. Now, by improving the weather, it doesn't mean that it's going to get sunny and balmy in, in, in uh, um, uh, eastern Ukraine. It means that, that it'll be frozen enough for tanks, artillery, and armored personnel carriers mm-hmm. to travel. Right now, it's very muddy and very uh, – Ukraine is the, uh, uh, the, the breadbasket of Europe, as, as goes the saying. It's, yeah. it's, it's one of the most fertile countries in the world. Now, the U.S. understands that China is looking – at, at this, and Putin is basically hedging his, his bets with China. He's saying, okay, the post-Soviet American order is something that has made Russia vulnerable, weak, and, and tarnished its image, as well as weaken it uh, substantially economically. We need to change this. We need to change the world into spheres of influence. Now, by the way, that, that could still happen. This is not something that happens, you know, in a day. Usually it happens either after a major war, say World War II, the world was divided, but it could also happen as a result of or, or something uh, uh, dramatic like the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Right now, neither of these happen. He's saying, if I invade Ukraine, maybe that'll be the, uh, 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 the, the accelerator, the ingredient that's missing for, the, for, the, uh, for a new world order. Okay. I doubt that'll happen. So to wrap things up, because we're getting uh, to the end of our time, if you were a betting man... <laughs> um, what do you, where do you put the odds of a real invasion versus some sort of diplomatic climb down from the tree solution? I I, I honestly don't know. It's it, it, it's not that I'm trying to uh, avoid making a uh, um, you know a bet and then a then prediction being, that doesn't a happen. A prediction yet. and then being proven wrong. It's okay. You know, in this business, it happens. Here's the thing: all the signs show that he intends to invade. Because now he's got nothing to lose. In fact, on a cost-effective basis, he probably will lose more by not invading. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when we say invasion, it doesn't mean that Russian troops will storm uh, the streets of Kiev. It means that they will uh, um, take over the, uh, the, the southern tip of the Donbass region from the Russian border to uh, the Crimean Peninsula. Maybe even go as far east, you know, or listeners may not have a map right in front of them, to the Dnieper River. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if he does that, he is begging for major sanctions, and nothing will make the Americans happier than imposing these sanctions. In fact, Biden will be in the same position. It'll be it'll be worse for him not to impose the sanctions because the Chinese may take a cue from this vis-a-vis Taiwan. Um, so back to your question. The signs show that he is already an intent on on making some kind of a move. The thing is, a limited move is not going to benefit him in any way. So he needs to make that move, not a major move, not not conquer the entire Ukraine, but at least something more than uh, a symbolic military incursion. To do that may cost him hundreds, if not thousands, of Russian soldiers' lives. I don't know that public opinion in, in Russia, and there is such a thing as public opinion mm-hmm. in Russia, to assume that everyone in Russia is a herd that follows uh, Putin is wrong. So I can't see diplomacy working here. I, I, I mean, someone has to make a major compromise here for diplomacy to work. And, and that someone has to be either Putin or NATO 
slash Biden. I don't see them making the grand gesture that would uh, uh, diffuse this. Well, we'll leave this with a big question mark. Um, anyone who wants to get even more insights into uh, into the situation uh, with Alon's great analysis, please go to uh, haaretz.com and check out his columns. Alon, thanks so much for Thank coming. Thank you, in. Allison. Anytime. That's it for Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv.